Welcome to the Westminster Pulpit, an extension of the worship ministry at Westminster Presbyterian Church in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format, and may this sermon nurture your life in a meaningful way as we proclaim our Savior. Good morning. Before I begin, I I just want to say how grateful I am to uh, be here and to be able to preach God's Word to you this morning from behind this pulpit. As of this past week, it's been a year since I've been at this church serving as a youth pastor, and just want to say that my wife and I have had an absolutely amazing experience here our first year. You have made us feel so welcomed and so at home, and so we just want to say thank you to everyone who's just welcomed us so graciously. And for those we haven't met, we look forward to getting to know you in the future. And uh, lastly, I just want to say I never thought that doing ministry and being a youth pastor would be as fun as it is, but uh, it's been a lot of fun. I've had a great time getting to know our junior and senior high students, and uh, I look forward to doing that for many more years. All right, so if you would, please turn with me now to uh, the book of Jeremiah, Jeremiah chapter 29, verses 1 through 14. Jeremiah 29, verses 1 through 14. Hear now the reading of God's holy word. These are the words of the letter that Jeremiah the prophet sent from Jerusalem to the surviving elders of the exiles and to the priests, the prophets, and all the people whom Nebuchadnezzar had taken into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. This was after King Jeconiah and the queen mother, the eunuchs, the officials of Judah and Jerusalem, the craftsmen, and the metal workers had departed from Jerusalem. The letter was sent by the hand of Elasa, the son of Shaphan, and Gemariah, the son of Hilkiah, whom Zedekiah, king of Judah, sent to Babylon, to Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. It said, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, To all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon, build houses and live in them, plant gardens and eat their produce, take wives and have sons and daughters, take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters, multiply there and do not decrease. But seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile, and pray to the Lord on its behalf, for in its welfare you will find your welfare. For thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, do not let your prophets and your diviners who are among you deceive you, and do not listen to the dreams that they dream. For it is a lie that they are prophesying to you in my name. I did not send them, declares the Lord. For thus says the Lord, when 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you and I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me and I will hear you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. 
I will be found by you, declares the Lord, and I will restore your fortunes and gather you from all the nations and all the places where I have driven you, declares the Lord. And I will bring you back to the place from which I sent you into exile. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Now, I'm going to uh, close my Bible and set it down here because I only have so much room on this pulpit. And uh, rest assured, I have the text in my notes. But I want to encourage you all to leave your Bibles open and follow along with me as I preach God's Word so that you can see for yourself whether or not what I am preaching actually does come from God. Uh, So before we begin, let us uh, bow our heads in a word of prayer and ask God to bless the preaching of His Word. Dear Lord, uh, I just thank you. I thank you for this day that you've given us to rest, to rest in you and in the truth of your word. I pray for your Holy Spirit to uh, speak to us, Lord, through your word, to sanctify us in your truth, that we may become more like Christ and that we would be enabled and equipped to live righteously before you all the days of our lives for the furtherance of your kingdom and your glory. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. On March 23rd, 1775, a speech was given at a meeting held at St. John's Church in Richmond, Virginia, in which it was said by a certain someone, and I quote, It is natural for man to indulge in the illusions of hope. We are apt to shut our eyes against a painful truth, Is this the part of wise men engaged in a great and arduous struggle for liberty? Are we disposed to be of the number of those who, having eyes, see not, and having ears, hear not, the things which so nearly concern their temporal salvation? For my part, whatever anguish of spirit it may cost, I am willing to know the whole truth, to know the worst, and to provide for it. End quote. The meeting in which that speech was made was the Second Virginia Convention, and the man who said those words were Patrick Henry, one of this country's most well-known founding fathers. And in that speech, the painful truth that Patrick Henry refers to is that it was time for the people of Virginia to declare their independence from Great Britain, their mother country, even if the cost meant going to war and losing thousands of lives. Well, one can easily perhaps imagine a similar speech being given thousands of years earlier on the other side of the globe, amongst the people of Judah, who were living as exiles in the city of Babylon. The year was 597 B.C., when King Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylon army made war on the kingdom of Judah and took its king, its royal officials, and its artisans, and the very best of her skilled workers captive, and then brought them to the city of Babylon, their capital, leaving the city of Jerusalem, the city in which it was thought that God himself dwelt, in utter shambles and disrepair. Well, needless to say, the people of Judah were in shock. 
The exiles couldn't believe what had happened to them. Surely this was not God's will for his chosen people, his treasured possession amongst all the nations of the earth. They were desperate to believe the slightest hint of good news. They were desperate to believe that this was not their fate. But unlike our founding fathers, the hard truth that these exiles in Babylon needed to face was not that they needed to rise up against their oppressors and go to war. No, the hard truth that they needed to face was that they were to stay in captivity. Now, as people living in America who take such great pride in their liberties, the idea that it would be God's will for his people to suffer in captivity under, under the yoke of a dictator, that sounds inconceivable to us. You can only imagine what a bitter pill this would have been for God's people to swallow then. And when you hear it, you can't help but ask, why? Why would God treat his people in this way? Why would it be his will for them to suffer at the hands of their enemies? Well, in order to begin to answer that question, we must first consider the context of our passage and examine the recent history of God's people. You see, prior to their captivity, the people of Judah had long ago rejected and rebelled against the Lord their God. They no longer worshipped Yahweh, the one true God, who had brought them out of slavery in the land of Egypt, who led, who led them and provided for them in the wilderness, and who gave them the land of Canaan as their inheritance and drove out their enemies from before them. They no longer worshipped that God. They rejected him. Instead, they now worshipped the fake deities of other nations, fake gods made out of wood and stone carved by their own hands. And to make matters even worse, they even murdered their own children, their own flesh and blood, and sacrificed them as offerings to these fake gods. And in doing so, they made themselves a stench to the to God in the land of Canaan. And we are told for 23 years, the prophet Jeremiah called the people to repentance. He pleaded them with them to return to the Lord and warn them of a national disaster that was coming. He pleaded with them to seek forgiveness. But despite his persistent calling, the people of Judah would not listen, and they did not repent and they just became more and more depraved. As a result, God saw fit to punish them for their sins, which, to be fair, is what he promised he would do long ago through his servant Moses, when the people were about to enter the land of Canaan for the very first time. In Deuteronomy 28, for example, Moses warns the newborn nation of Israel, saying, If you do not obey the Lord your God and do not carefully follow all his commands and decrees I am giving you today, 
All these curses will come on you and overtake you. The Lord will cause you to be defeated before your enemies. And the Lord will bring you and your king, whom you have set over you, to a nation that neither you nor your fathers have known. That was told to the people of Israel almost a thousand years prior to the exile. And to his servant David, the Lord also made a similar promise. In 2 Samuel, the Lord promised King David, he said that he would raise up an offspring for him. And as a loving father disciplines his sons when they do wrong, the Lord promised that he too would discipline David's offspring when he goes astray. This then is the context in which the Babylonian exile has occurred. Disaster has not come upon the people of God because God has somehow been unfaithful. Nor is it because God is somehow unable to keep his promises. On the contrary, it's precisely because God is faithful to his word and does keep his promises that the Babylonian exile has taken place. A loving God does not allow his people to continue in sin, but instead corrects them when they go astray. And that's exactly what God is doing in this passage. Like a loving father, God is disciplining his children. But like any loving parent knows, discipline involves more than just punishment. It involves more than just telling your child what not to do. It also involves teaching them how to live rightly. And that's what God does in verses 5 through 7 for the exiles in Judah. He tells the people of Judah how they are to spend their time in exile. And unlike Patrick Henry and the founding fathers of this nation, the exiles of Judah are not to spend their time planning a rebellion to throw off the yoke of tyranny. No, surprisingly, God tells them that they are instead to be a blessing to their captors. He tells them to add value to the city in which they now live by building houses and planting gardens. He tells them to flourish and not to decrease, but to marry and to have children. And even more than that, he tells them to pray, to pray for their captors and to seek their welfare. In other words, the exiles of Judah are no longer to be concerned only for themselves, but they are to look after the welfare of their enemies. They are to love their enemies and do good to them. And notice what else God says. He tells them to do he tells them to do this because in seeking the welfare of their enemies, they will also find their own welfare. And this teaches us that a selfish lifestyle is not a healthy lifestyle. To be concerned only for yourself and those of your own household is to seek your own destruction. But if you want to truly be a healthy and prosperous Christian, you will inevitably cultivate within yourself a love for those who are different from you. And not only that, but you will cultivate that love by actively seeking the good of those who persecute you. You will seek 
the good of others and pray for their prosperity. That is God's will for his people, no matter the circumstances. And in giving the exiles this command, we also see that the Lord is not telling them anything new, really. In fact, this has always been God's plan for his people. Far from being anything new, God is restoring his people to their original purpose. This purpose is as old as the call of Abraham. In Genesis chapter 12, in the first three verses, God says to Abraham, I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Did you hear that? God's original purpose for Abraham and his family was that they would be a blessing to other nations. Genesis 12:3 says, In you all the families of the earth will be blessed. He does not say, In you only the nation of Israel will be blessed. No, he says, In you, my servant Abraham, all the nations will be blessed. This means that Abraham's family, the nation of Israel, was supposed to be a gift from God to the rest of the world. They were supposed to be God's ambassadors, witnesses of his mighty acts of salvation to the rest of humanity. This is why when God makes a covenant with them at Mount Sinai, in Exodus chapter 19, he tells them, you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Well, what do priests do except for intercede for others? They pray to God on behalf of people. They act as mediators whose mission it is to reconcile God and man. And this was the nations of Israel's original calling. As a nation, they were supposed to be mediators between God and the rest of the world. They were supposed to be the very means by which God reconciles mankind to himself. And this, of course, makes their fall from grace even more tragic. Because instead of being the light of the world, which calls people out of darkness, Israel became corrupt. Instead of being light, they themselves became the darkness. And in doing so, they failed to live up to their calling. And they abandoned humanity without the hope of ever being reconciled to God. But now in our passage... God is once again calling them to live according to their original purpose. He is remaking his people through the crucible of exile into a kingdom of priests by his loving discipline of them. All right, then God goes on in our passage in verses 8 through 9 to tell the people of Judah what they are not to do and how they are not to live. He tells them not to listen to the prophets and the diviners among them who are prophesying lies in his name. The lies that God refers to here 
is the lie that the Babylonian Empire would be severely weakened and ultimately defeated, and that the people of Judah would return from the exile in just two short years. It was the idea that this exile was somehow a sort of tragic mistake that was never supposed to happen. But these were lies. These false prophets were telling the people what they wanted to hear for their own gain. So God says in verse 9, he says, I did not send them, says the Lord. He warns his people not to listen to them. But let's notice what this passage does say about who God did send and where he sent them. In verses 4, 7, and 14, this passage tells us that God sent them, the people of Judah, into exile. And Jeremiah emphasizes this point three different times because he wants the people to know that this is indeed God's will for them. Yes, verse 1 tells us that Nebuchadnezzar brought the people into exile. But by making this point on three different occasions, Jeremiah is telling them that God is the one who is sovereign over Nebuchadnezzar. He is the one who stands behind Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar is merely God's servant, carrying out God's will for his people. And this idea is further emphasized in the title which God gives himself. In verses 4 and 8, Jeremiah refers to God as the Lord of hosts which in Hebrew can literally be translated as the Yahweh of armies, which of course refers to God's heavenly armies of angels. And we see these heavenly armies of angels in different places throughout Scripture. And whenever they appear, it is usually to protect or to fight for God's people. It is to intervene on behalf of mankind and to intervene in man's affairs to govern the world according to God's purposes. Well, on this occasion, the Lord of hosts is intervening for the sake of his people, but in doing so, he's allowing them to be defeated. He's allowing them to go into exile. And so this title, Lord of hosts, tells the people that this sovereign, all-powerful God is the same God who stands behind this Babylonian exile. King Nebuchadnezzar himself would eventually learn this important lesson. For example, in Daniel chapter 4, Nebuchadnezzar looks up to heaven and confesses that God, Israel's God, his dominion is an everlasting dominion. All the inhabitants of the earth, Nebuchadnezzar says, are accounted as nothing before God. And he does according to his will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. And none can stay his hand or say to him, what is this that you are doing? That's Nebuchadnezzar who said that. And the lesson that Nebuchadnezzar has learned for himself is the very lesson that God is now trying to teach his own people. The lesson that he is indeed all-powerful, And nothing can come about other than what his will has ordained is right. And in their case, God has ordained 
that they must stay in exile. Therefore, the prophet Jeremiah is calling the people of Judah to submit, submit to God's will. Jeremiah then goes on in verse 10 to tell them that they must stay in exile for a period of 70 years. If they try to leave short of that, their plans will ultimately fail. And only at the end of 70 years will God return to them and bring them back to the promised land. And what we should notice about verse 10 here is that just like it was God who sent them into the exile, it's going to be God who brings them back. In other words, their fate is completely and utterly in God's hands. There is nothing that they can do to speed up or shorten the time in exile. Instead, they must patiently, patiently endure and wait on the Lord and on his timing. This must have been extremely hard news for them to hear, which is why in verse 11, God goes on to continue to comfort his people. God does not only scold his people, and give them tough directions. But God is gracious and merciful, so he, he goes on in verse 11 to offer a word of comfort. And he tells them that he will inevitably return, that their return to the promised land will indeed happen. And he assures them in verse 11, saying, For I know, I know the plans I have for you, plans for welfare, not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. Now, personally, I think verse 11 might be one of the most beautiful verses in all of Scripture, one of the most beautiful promises. But what's so interesting about it is the context in which it was made. It's not uncommon to see this verse quoted on plaques or pictures with some sort of beautiful and serene setting behind it, like misty mountains or sun setting over a lake. In fact, if you go to Hobby Lobby, that's probably what you will see. Or if you Google it on the internet, that's inevitably what you will see. But God does not make this promise to his people in a beautiful and serene setting. Instead, this promise of assurance is made in the midst of total and utter brokenness, grief, and even despair. And this is exactly why the people of God needed to hear it. In other words, this promise is not intended for those who think that they have made it, to think that they have already arrived. No. Rather, this promise is for people in pain. This promise is for people who are mourning, to assure them that no matter what trials you may be facing, your grief will not be the end of your story. Your grief is not your destiny. For God has plans to give all his people a bright and prosperous future. And not only does he have plans for this, but he is capable of using every experience we have no matter how painful, dis disappointing, or discouraging it might be to accomplish his benevolent plans. In other words, nothing, nothing can uh, thwart 
the all-powerful and sovereign God's will for his people. This passage is in effect telling us what we know from Romans 8.28, which says, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. And so for the Judeans in Babylon, even this exile will be for their ultimate good. God is using this exile to accomplish his great and glorious purpose for them, to mold them into the people he wants them to become. What a comforting thought it is to know that even life's worst moments will be redeemed in such a way that eventually they will actually serve our ultimate good and our ultimate good end. Verses 12 through 14 then go on to explain that only after, only after God comes to his people will they seek him. We see that God must come first before his people can be restored. Salvation is an act that is initiated by the Lord. The people of God would never be able to seek him without him first giving them help. God himself must first give his people the desire and the will to seek him out. And only when that happens will they find him and be reconciled to him. Only when that happens will they return to the promised land, the land in which God himself will dwell and live amongst them. And this once again reinforces the idea that the people of Judah are completely and utterly dependent on God and for him to act on their behalf. There is nothing that they can do for themselves. And that is what God wants his people to know. That's what he wants for you and for me more than anything. God wants his people, his elect exiles, to submit to his will for their lives, no matter what that may be, and to trust and believe in his promises and to depend on him and his word alone for their good and for their their salvation. Now, of course, we know from the rest of the Bible story and from the pages of history that these promises of God were indeed fulfilled. God did return to his people in Babylon, and he did bring them back to Jerusalem. But here's the thing. God never again dwelt amongst the people in a temple built by human hands. And the nation of Israel was never restored to its former glory. That almost sounds contradictory to what God's word has said in these last two verses. So then what are we to think? Was God unfaithful to keep all of his promises? Absolutely not. Because here's the thing. God did indeed dwell among them, but not in the kind of temple that they were expecting. Not in in a temple built by human hands, but nevertheless, the very fullness of God did indeed dwell again among his people, but this time it would be in flesh and blood, in the person of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. And through Christ, and though Christ may not have restored the nation of Israel to its former glory, he actually did something much, much greater. 
He and he alone fulfilled God's original purpose for Israel by doing what no one else could do. Christ breathed and walked amongst the people of this world and he lived a perfect and obedient life unto God. He left his home in heaven to live as an exile amongst sinful humanity, amongst his enemies who rebelled and hated him. And he obeyed God's commands perfectly in exile. He showed us what it looks like to love our enemies. He showed us what it looks like to bless those who curse you and how to pray for those who abuse you. He came as an exile amongst his people of the world and healed the sick. He raised the dead. He forgave sins. And most of all, he offered himself as a sacrifice once and for all for the atonement of sin in order that whosoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. And in doing so, Christ fulfilled God's original promise for Israel. You see, through his atoning death on the cross, now people from every nation, from every part of the globe, no matter their past sins or where they are, can, be, can come to the fountain of living water and they can be reconciled to God, their creator. The kingdom of Israel, therefore, is now greater and more glorious than it has ever been. Its dominion is a global dominion, and its citizens belong to every nation of the globe. Furthermore, we know that no spiritual or earthly force can prevail over or conquer over God's kingdom. No longer can God's kingdom be defeated in battle. No longer can the people of God's kingdom be enslaved to forces of darkness. On the contrary, Christ promises that he will continue to build Israel, his kingdom, and that even the gates of hell shall not be able to prevail against it. God's kingdom will go on in triumphant victory. But where do you and I, where do we fit into this kingdom? Well, if we have accepted Christ as our Savior, if we have submitted to his will for our lives, no matter what that may be, and if we have put our trust and hope in him for our salvation, if we trust in his word alone and not the lies of men, then you and I, can have the privilege of being citizens in this new and glorious kingdom. And if for some reason you see yourself on the outside of God's kingdom, not yet a citizen, I have good news for you. And that good news is that there's no citizenship test to be a part of this kingdom. Nor is there a waiting period that you have to wait patiently for. Nor is there a hefty fine that you have to pay in order to become a citizen. All you must do now is bow the knee to Christ and accept him as your Lord and your King. All you have to do is confess your sins and ask for forgiveness. And it will be so. For God himself promises us 
that when we seek him, we will indeed find him. Now, perhaps you are looking around at your life and you're feeling a little disappointed. And you say, maybe this is a nice message, but it really doesn't feel like I'm living in a glorious kingdom. Well, let me assure you that you are. It may not feel like it, but, because, that, but that's because like Israel of old, we are in a waiting period. Like Israel of old, God is making a, remaking us in the crucible of exile to become more like him and to be the people that he wants us to become. We are waiting as exiles in a foreign land for the Lord to finish building his kingdom and to bring us home to live with him for all eternity. But waiting is not all that we are doing. Because in the meantime, Christ calls us to pick up our cross and to follow him. He calls us to live as ambassadors amongst the people, the unbelieving people of this world. And to tell them about his mighty works of salvation. To tell them about the grace that can be found in him and him alone. And the way in which we build this kingdom is by being a blessing to our neighbors, by adding value to the cities in which we live, by loving those people who are much different from us, and by praying for and seeking not only their physical but their spiritual welfare. This means that our words as well as our actions are to testify to Christ's mighty acts of salvation. It won't be an easy work Don't be mistaken, nor will it always be joyful. Living in exile is hardly joyful. In fact, sometimes his plans for us will seem so unbearable that we will wonder like the people of Judah, what in the world is he up to? Is God really there? But rest assured in Christ's promises that it will be rewarding. He will visit us again. Our great and ultimate reward will be that day when Christ comes to gather us from all the nations and all the places that he has sent us to and to bring us back to himself, to bring us back to that eternal land of everlasting rest where we will behold the glory of God face to face and where God himself will stoop down to wipe away every tear that you have ever shed during this time in exile. God himself will redeem it. God himself will make it right. God himself will give you the peace and comfort that you so long for. That is our great reward. So in the meantime, let us not give in to the lies of man. Let us not believe those things that we so desperately want to believe, as nice as they sound. Let us not become like the people of Judah who became darkness. Let us shine as lights in the world who proclaim Christ, so that all might become citizens of his glorious kingdom for the glory of God, so that all people 
all people might share in that promise of assurance, those words of such great comfort. For I know the plans I have for you, plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. Let us pray. Almighty God and Heavenly Father, we thank you for this day, this day in exile that you have given us. We thank you, Lord, that you are God who sent his one and only Son to live in exile amongst us, to show us the way in which we ought to live. Lord, we pray that you would fill us with his Holy Spirit and equip us to live rightly and righteously before you, to equip us to share the gospel to the ends of the globe so that all might come to saving faith in Jesus Christ for the glory of his name. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. The Westminster Pulpit is courtesy of Westminster Presbyterian Church in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. You are welcome to worship with us on Sunday mornings at 8 or 11 a.m. To learn more or have questions about the gift of salvation through Christ Jesus our Savior, contact us at westpca.com. Thank you, and may Christ be glorified through this ministry, the Westminster Pulpit.